Okay. How do we start this show? I think it's welcome to Pain in the Dice because games are fun, but sometimes hard. Right. Hello and welcome to Pain in the Dice because games are fun and sometimes hard. I'm one of your hosts, Terry Robinson. And I'm the other host, Chaz. And Chaz, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Hundred Devils Night Parade, an antagonist book for Exalted Third Edition. Hooray! What is the format of this book and maybe like where did it come from? Sure. So this book is kind of an unusual entry in the Exalted series because it came out of Onyx Path looking for a way to respond to the slow release cycle, especially of early 3rd edition Exalted. And after they changed the development team, they they brought on a couple of side developers who were going to work on monthly release products for Exalted. So this book is a compilation of one of those series, the kind of monster book, if you will, where over the course of a, a little over a year, I forget what the time frame was, uh, every month they released like two entries in this book. And then they stopped doing that and wrote a whole bunch more entries and then put them all together in one book called Hundred Devil's Night Parade, uh, which is what we are looking at and reviewing today. Excellent. The book opens with a introduction of sorts, and it just kind of gives us a bit of fiction about a character who is witnessing the parade of devils, which is this phenomenon that many towns or areas of creation have where all sorts of strange beasts will go through during calibration. I will be taking the role of the person who does not know Exalted too well, and Chaz will be taking on the role of the person who knows everything about Exalted, because that's just the way things work. Um, Chaz, what notionally is calibration and the parade of devils, and why is that important in Exalted? Calibration is the five-day period at the end of the year where the sun, moon, and stars do not appear in the sky. It is considered a lucky time, um, but also a dangerous time. It is the time of year where the boundary between uh, Malpheus, or, or hell, the demon realm, and creation is at its thinnest, uh, when demons are able to more easily escape into creation. And going back to the first age, all of the solar exalted in particular would get together for a giant five-day festival during calibration, because calibration was the only period when third circle demons could be summoned into creation, and the solar exalted wanted to make sure nobody else was doing that. And since they were the only ones who had that capability, they figured if they were all at a big party, that wouldn't happen. And so a combination of this a weird topsy-turvy time with the celebratory cultural aspect of the party kind of disseminated out into the rest of creation to have these festivals of, of uncertainty of demons and devils. It's a little bit like in the medieval period where you would, would flip social roles on certain festivals, traditionally around midwinter when the year was at its darkest. Calibration also draws some inspiration from the Mesoamerican calendar, which also has a period of days at the end of the calendar that are, are not part of any month and are their, their own special period. And the piece of opening fiction involves a character being stuck to a horse made of ice. 
Uh, and yes. this is <laughs> this is kind of uses our excuse to have our our hero be pulled far and wide. Do you have any thoughts on the introduction before we get into the sections proper? I have very mixed feelings about the introductory fiction. I think it's well written. Reading it chapter by chapter feels a little bit contrived that each of these different things appears in turn to this character. It just seemed very convenient to what the book was trying to do, rather than an organic narrative. But there is actually an arc through all of the chapter fictions, which I appreciate in, in a book. It just it feels a little awkward. And the first chapter is entitled Strange Beasts. And the way we're going to do this, we each have two or three that we've picked for each section. And we're going to share those with you. So let's talk about what they mean by strange beasts first, because Exalted is a world that has lots of different things in it. And something that third edition has been really good about doing is not categorizing everything. In past editions of Exalted, everything got put into its box, and those boxes had pretty firm walls. And where things in first edition weren't in a strict box, a box was created around them for second edition. And third edition has definitely reintroduced the weird into Exalted. I know on Systematic Understanding of Everything, one of our refrains was keep creation weird. And the Strange Beasts is part of doing that. These are things that don't aren't necessarily creatures of the wild or demons or natural animals, but are somehow touched by, by magic to be strange. Many of them have origins in the first age. Some of them are just emergent phenomena of creation. Uh, the one that, that I wanted to call out here is Lodestar, uh, which is a charming scorpion man automata created as a prototype servant for the exalted in the first age. And just think the idea of a design by committee automata servant is fun, especially when it creates this charming and totally bizarre scorpion man at the end of it. And the interesting thing about that is, it, like, my first thought when I saw it was it kind of gives a peek into how the first age worked because a whole bunch of people submitted the design and the solar deliberative is like, we're cutting off funding. This isn't focused enough. Uh, this is probably too old for either of us, actually. But, like, it's a floor wax. It's a dessert topping. It's both in terms of things <laughs> it could do. And, like, it is a man tank and it has 14 dice for what is listed as servants tasks. So it seems like one of those things where you need to convince the GM or storyteller that being like killing all of these orcs in the living room is really a servant's task. That way it just has this this beastly, beastly dice pool for it. It has a sunbeam attack, which I labeled the Care Bear Stare, and it says it is immune to cold-based poisons. I have no idea what that means, but I thought it was cute. And it mentions that it has an archaic humor, so I can't help but imagine this um, fastidious man scorpion who like uses slightly inappropriate terms for people. <laughs> like, Oh dear. <laughs> But that's probably probably not how it how it worked in in creation. After its creation in the first age, the Lodestar went into dormancy, just waiting for your character to to find them. And they specifically call out that this would count as a four dot retainer to have this automata servant. What is the difference between an ally, a retainer, and a familiar? An ally is someone who ha is going to have their own agenda and will help you sometimes. They may call on you to be an ally to them as well. So they are likely to be the most powerful of the three. A retainer 
is someone who is in your service. So you can pretty much always call on them to do things for you. And you don't necessarily need to return service to them as part of that relationship because you've hired them or they've sworn an oath of service or uh, something like that. Got it. Uh, So a retainer has higher uptime. Yes. A familiar has some mystic bond with you, but also is an animal. So they are going to require some, some more direct management, but then also have that mystic bond where they can benefit from your essence. And, and most exalted types have charms that let them further empower their familiars, which you could not do to Lodestar because Lodestar is not a familiar. No. In terms of things that are plot devices, just waiting for your characters to discover, as many things are in this book are, Gujam Un, the Living Mance. That's, uh, it's it's exactly what what's on the tin. It is a giant house that will try and eat you, that tries to misdirect you with a whole bunch of hallways and such, and, and keep you within with charm names like Desolation Suspire and Fortress of Bone and Mortar. It is unkillable. It has survived being hit by the Realm Defense Grid, which the misunderstood character Balor was not able to deal with. Um, (laughs) And it's one of those things where any monster that has its own monster is kind of interesting because it's like, oh, by the way, the entry before that where these these moths that just come out and kill people, they live inside of this thing. So it's a deadly creature that has the ability to eject a swarm of deadly creatures that is also functionally unkillable. So have fun with that. If you want your characters to fight a house... Uh, that that is one of the options here, and a, and a house may be selling it short uh, because it is like a fortress a castle, proper. Yeah. yeah, it was made from the corpse of a behemoth slain in the first age uh, that was forged into a manse. But due to its behemoth nature, after it was not tended, it uprooted itself. Uh, it also has a, a really good set of charms to be a top tier threat. One of the challenges in Exalted 3rd Edition combat is the action economy really favors having more actors because of the, the way that initiative flow works. And there's a number of threats, uh, Gajam Un being the, the first example of that in this book, that turn that action economy on its head so that they can make real legitimate threatening attacks against an entire army of characters. And that that works well here when you want to present a, a campaign-grade antagonist. Yeah, it's interesting because it has 65 health levels and it mentions if it eats a non-trivial character, it gets one back. So I like the <laughs> idea that it can have like an amuse-bouche to recover health levels. But as Chaz says, uh, it, it does do this. It talks about, hey, this attack can affect multiple people at the same time. It's not affected by onslaught penalties. It does a good job of showing you all the mechanical ways to represent a, a two-seater, a chonker, as it were, and how to make it so they can't just be bum-rushed by a whole bunch of people. Yep. 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 And they do it in more ways than just giving it a boatload of hit points. What was your next choice? 
My next choice is a classic and another kind of top tier threat, the Thousand Forged Dragon. The Thousand Forged Dragon is a first age automata super weapon that is a mechanical dragon. They've been something that's been in Exalted for a while. And again, they, they do a good job making this a top tier threat. They talk about how there's only a handful of them that survive, uh, that they require first age passcodes to activate and control. They are, again, kind of a living weapon automata, and they're neat. The thing that I liked about it is it seemed like one of the few cases where a Western style dragon was depicted. Um, mm, like in the art, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of different dragon types from a lot of different cultures that are presented, and this seemed to be the one place where you're like, yep, when I think fantasy steamwork dragon, boom. So it was kind of right there. That has always been the case that the Thousand Forge dragons have been presented as Western dragons, where in their shape, while uh, most of the other dragons in the setting have been Eastern dragons. What's your next choice from the Strange Beast chapter? So the one that I think narratively is important, as much as I want to talk about Mahankara, uh, who is one mile tall and weighs 61 times the Pyramid of Giza, I ran the numbers, or the weight of one third of all current humans combined, and has a foot that is 800 feet long and 260 foot wide, roughly, and still only has nine Intimidate dice. I want to talk about the Gem Seeker. This is one Adorbs but is a small salamander that has the ability to determine if a gem is real or not. So one of the things I'm always looking in a bestiary is what creatures in here not only are things my players can fight, but explain how the world works. Yeah. And uh, for instance, in the opening fiction, they talk a lot about how important it is to lay salt lines. And it's like, okay, so mundane people have an ability to resist the influence of demons, devils, and ghosts, and so on. But the gem seeker asks a critical question when you have a whole bunch of people that have the power of, the, of, of illusion, or you're dealing with something from the wild, or things may not be what it seems. How do you prevent someone from destroying the economy by just having a large quantity of fake gems? And just having a little guy that's like, yep, this is a real gem. Or, uh, no, this isn't, I think is super useful. So narratively, it is an important creature to me, and I am, I am glad that it is included. Yeah, there's a number of those throughout the book of creatures that are not a combat threat. While this is a, a monster book where many things are presented as this is how it functions in combat, there's a number that just add to the world. Because really, any starting character is going to be able to fight a, a gem seeker and win. I mean, it's a, it's a gem-eating lizard, unless you're a, a small brock. Um, you don't have a lot uh, to be threatened by for mm -hmm. it. Uh, but to your point, it informs how it functions in the world. And the dream hawk is another one that kind of fell into that category, where these hawks eat dreams and can carry dream messages between people. Or the gravehounds, which are corpse-eating dogs who uh, retain the memories of ghosts and can, can come and deliver a message from the deceased. The gravehounds didn't quite make sense to me, because they're like, they take on the intimacy and try and fulfill the quest. Like, if you were killed by, like, Lord Colon Breaker Render of Assholes or something like that, and your corpse is consumed, like... That Gravehound is screwed. <laughs> like, <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> this is a world of very brave people making very stupid choices. I can see like Gravehounds. They, maybe they have a lot of pups and that's how they get around this. But um, did They you, are good dogs, yes. Did, do you have anything else in the Strange Beast section that you wanted to just like point at and be like, this is cool? Plentimon's Ladybugs 
who are bugs that bite you and infect you with good luck. And so at casinos, one of the things the pit bosses look for is unusual luck, uh, and then they might search you for the dice pip bite of the uh, of Plentimon's ladybugs. And how does it? How does luck get shown mechanically, Chaz? It lowers the target number, <gasps> uh, which is up until now something only Sidereals have been able to do. And uh, this section had a bunch of other interesting creatures, like the uh, the person eating fang blossoms, where it's like, yeah, you need to curate them, or it'll just eat everyone. And you're like, what does curate mean? You have the chillican rage monkeys. You have the the grosbeak, which is absolutely massive, depending on how you interpret their listing. Uh, jungle stalkers, where it's physically impossible for them to spend all of their motes as listed, and the mouse of the sun, who will come and destroy you and inflict you with a plague that will uh, that could leave like Caragas to run and scream. So we got that. Chapter 2, it covers the dead, both ghosts and underworld entities. And ghosts are kind of a broad category in Exalted. And so this gives a lot of different examples of, of types of ghosts or archetypes for ghosts. If we were to get a ghost book down the line, I'd expect to be able to look at the ghost powers and kind of reconstruct some of the creatures presented here from Ghost Powers. But this is a really good way of kind of giving some of that breadth to the ghostly. Are there any in particular that, that you liked here? Yes. Uh, alphabetically, I kind of like the first and the last. Anku, who wears the first the face of the first person who dies each near, year in the North and goes around collecting souls. And the thing that was interesting to me is not... The thing is listed. The thing is listed was kind of flavorful, just kind of this implacable thing that went around collecting souls. It is not quite like the scythe wielding Western figure of death in that it does not come tap you and you die. But after you die, your soul is kind of like looking at its watch, being like, I got a bus to pick me up. And like Anku is the, the, the soul bus. Um, <laughs> and it kind of presents it as a interesting antagonist in that you can be like, oh shit plot device died, we need to get to their ghost before Anku can, or something like that. The, the depiction of that it wears the face of the first person to die each year, I thought was kind of flavorful. The other thing that it mentioned that I kind of liked is it said that it was uneasy with the liminals, as they say that their uh, method of reconstructing bodies steals a portion of the soul. And that I thought was new. And I don't know if this quite counts, but in terms of Exalted's fondness for trope subversion, whenever you have that robed figure of death in a setting, it is almost always implacable, like that's the whole metaphor. And here, it's like, you look at the dice pools, you look at how fast it moves, you look at the mechanics, you're like, oh, it's really easy to outrun death. How's that as a metaphor for this game? And I'm just all of those pieces <laughs> together, I kind of liked. Yeah, no, that that is all cool. One of the ones that I liked here was the Ciceros. Which is not one ghost, but a series of shredded ghosts surviving fragments of ghosts torn asunder and amalgamated into a hungering ghost wind. They cannot materialize themselves, but can possess the living through like a pseudopod and like the shape of a ghost that they can put out on that pseudopod. It's a creepy death thing. And there's a lot of them in this chapter, but I think the Suceros is is one of the coolest. So one of the things I didn't understand about that listing is it makes mention that there's a gambit that it can perform, but 
it's immaterial and it can't do that. Like, how do you build initiative if you're immaterial and can't actually interact? Because there were a couple cases in the book where it seemed like there would be an opening gambit that a creature would always do in combat because that was kind of one of the recurring ways of representing the special power that a creature would have by turning it into a gambit. And from what I understand, in a gambit, you venture initiative more or less. So is that just one of those things where you need to get a bunch of successes on your on your joint battle roll? Or? So getting successes on the joint battle roll is, is probably the easiest way to do it. And then to use that starting initiative for the gambit. Often when you encounter ghosts, though, it, it, it is in Shadowlands or the Underworld, where okay. they are material by nature. Okay. Uh, and so they don't have to deal with that dematerialized aspect. And then I suspect another piece of it will be, as the line progresses, we'll get, like, the Solar Exalted have the ability to pull spirits into material form, which they can do for their allies. We'll probably have something from Abyssals and, uh, that lets them do it for ghost beings and may let them pass initiative onto ghost beings as well. So there's a couple of a couple of different things mechanically that that can uh, get you there. The next one I found to be interesting for a variety of reasons were the white robes. These are ghostly white robes that burn with an inner green flame, at least if the art is to be believed, in a mirror to the professional mourners of Sijan. And I think it is interesting that the role of professional mourner in creation and in our world is probably wildly different. <laughs> um, in our world, it is a not uncommon cultural practice that you will have a professional mourner to help a family mourn in the sense that in a lot of restrained societies to shed that first tear is very hard, but a lot of cultures have recognized, no, they need to get out or bad things will eventually happen. In a lot of cases, professional mourners kind of prime the pump as it were. They they demonstrate appropriate lacrimal behavior and they set a cadence, kind of like having someone lead a dance class practically. And that is not a universal phenomenon, but I've had a few encounters with this trade and I'm like, ah, everything makes way more sense now. But in Exalted, that's probably not what it's for. <laughs> no, the, so the mourners of Sijan in particular, uh, Sijan is the city of death built on one of the very first Shadowlands uh, that connected creation to the underworld. And and the mourners of Sijan travel around the east and collect the dead and basically give them proper burial and ancestor worship for payment. Mm. So ghosts very literally get the things that are given to them as ghost offerings. And so having a, a an order of living mourners uh, pass those goods on to you through prayer is a very compelling thing. It is the, you can take it with you, a piece of the underworld in creation. The analog seems to be like someone who can help smuggle something into or out of a prison. The thing that struck me as interesting about the white robes is, one, they mourn the concept of death. They are immaterial, and they are followed by the grief bees, who create a kind of honey from sorrow with, with grief strained out of it. And uh, weeping honey is a, a thing that you can acquire for various reasons and seems like a great plot device if I were to have someone make a, a sorceress working or something that involved despair or what have you. The thing that got me is 
Echoes of Grief is a merit they have that gives them aid in read intentions, but there's nowhere in here that indicates that anyone talks to the white robes, merely that as they move, they have mysterious etchings across their robes that move that give information about the underworld. They don't move particularly quickly, and you can discern the underworld, the the, the reading on the robes with a difficulty three intelligence plus linguistics or occult role with a goal number of 20 and an interval of 10 minutes. So it seems like something where you can get like sacred insight into the underworld by following these guys around for an hour. And it's just one of those things where like the pieces didn't quite fit together. And kind of one of the recurring themes I had for this book was I would have liked a little bit more information about the motives of creatures, because in some cases we get intimacies in other cases we don't. So for instance, what's the point of the white robes having read intentions if they're not going to talk to you? So it was just one of those cases where there was just puzzle piece missing. I could infer from that and come up with what a white robe would say, but I I am always curious what the, the writer had in mind because you can have them be this implacable strange force that moves through the underworld or you can have them be ambassadors for death. Each version is different to me. Both are acceptable, but I always appreciate guidance as a reader in knowing kind of which one is intended. This is an interesting one because I think the white robes in particular uh, suffer from limited word count. Uh, the goal of the, the material was to get a bunch of interesting stuff out quickly, and that directive inherently limits how much word count you can spend on developing each idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, the white robes, along with some of the others, only get a single paragraph of, of preamble text that places them in creation. Mm-hmm. And those, those paragraphs are really juicy. They add a lot. But there are a number of places where I would have loved to have another paragraph or two developing the idea a little further, embedding it more into its place in creation. This is strictly hypothesizing, but often entries seem to be reformatted to fit in this versus their original publication format. And in some cases, in moving it to here, suddenly there would be a quarter of a page at the bottom that were free, or alternatively, because of how a section was being outlaid. Uh, This book had a lot of weird white space in it. It didn't do the traditional monster manual thing of like one creature per page or picture on left, description on right. It, It flows continuously and because of that different pieces have different size art so sometimes you have a lot of space and sometimes you don't so uh, it, it led to some interesting layout i don't know of a way around that it is just kind of an artifact of how it was originally done versus how it was compiled did you have a another creature in the dead yes karagost the hundred handed uh, which was a totally new kind of being and actually had a, a bunch of lead into it It is an amalgamated guardian ghost uh, made from 50 warriors who sacrifice themselves to guard their city from this monster realm. And the city is long gone, but Karagas still stands defending the stair down to this realm of monsters. And it just adds a whole bunch of interesting ideas into what what ghosts can be like or do or it does a good job of making creation weird paragraphs for that i'm not sure how i feel about the art i think it is hard to make someone with 50 faces look cool that they've made a valiant effort to do so 
And it's a weird thing because this is one of those cases where you have this creature in the middle of nowhere that defends a thing. And that's kind of a recurring theme in this book, like guy in a place to stop other guy from going to a place. But I feel like the write-ups don't always do a good job of saying why you would want to go to the place they're guarding. Like Karagas, as portrayed, it makes sense that they would be the defender from whatever is coming out of this. But the art depicts somebody picking a fight with Karagast, who is probably not yeah. one of the beings being retained. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And I, I kind of, it would almost be better if like there were Again, this is one where a little bit more writing could have could have given some story hooks mm-hmm. to be like, this is why you might end up in a fight with Karagast. Because Karagast, a really interesting character, doesn't really have a bone to pick with you. Yeah. So how, how do you end up in that fight? Another paragraph of like, Karagast doesn't allow others to go into this area, which is known to have XYZ mm-hmm. interesting thing could be one way to to do that another thing could be like if your characters get lost in the underworld and this is one of the ways out Out. in the region and so you don't really have a bone to pick with karagast except that karagast doesn't let anybody out yes (laughs) i have Um, one job and i will do it (laughs) exactly so there's definitely ways that you can create that conflict but it is a little bit of a lift to get there yeah And that's one of the cases where you talk about it'd be nice if there were more space because of the way it's laid out. Page 70, there's two thirds of a, not quite two thirds, two fifths of a page that's free there. That is probably an artifact, though, of when it was put out as a single page front and back. So we we have that we have that space now. And just it's kind of a a byproduct of, of how that was how that was put together. Any other general thoughts on creatures in this section? There's a bunch of cool ones. I know we talked about the Rantai on systematic understanding of everything, uh, which is another amalgamated death being. I like amalgamated death beings. This is something that I've realized about my relationship to undead monsters, is that if it's one undead monster, I just don't care. But amalgamated death monsters, like, that's my jam. I I don't know what it is. (laughs) Reasonable. I also like the fact that it's like, hey, if it runs out of spirits to steal from, it'll just steal your skeleton. Um, <laughs> but it won't steal the skeletons of the dead. That doesn't count somehow. I'm like, oh, okay, that's um, th- that's an interesting case. There were a few creatures in here where I wasn't quite sure what the point was. Like the haunt seemed like a narratively useful creature that just kind of had this whiff of memory, but I'm not sure otherwise what it would be. There was the forlorn manor, which was a giant ghost manor. And I'm curious how the forlorn manor and Gajam Un would get along, if at all. (laughs) Um, I feel like those are the two friends that they don't actually have a lot in common, but they have one thing in common. All their friends want them to get together. I have a thought on on the haunt, and this kind of gets back to my idea about this presenting a bunch of archetypes for what a ghost could be like this is a type of ghost with this particular power in the case of the doppelganger or in the case of the drowned these are hungry ghosts who drowned and and that's how that affects them the haunt uh, seems like it is filling out that list of options of hey this is the first time we're really showing you a bunch of different ghosts and this is telling you that it is okay to tell this kind of ghost story in creation hmm. and here's how, here's how you can do that. There are certain recurring trends that occur across the sections. Most of them have a this is how th- information moves quickly via this group 
And here we had that in the form of the remarkably fast grave messengers. And one of the recurring things across the section is every creature type seemingly has its messenger type creature. So it kind of answers the question of how do we keep creation connected? And that I also appreciated. The next section was entitled Spirits. Chaz, what's a spirit? Well, Spirits and Exalted actually covers a really wide variety of critters. Uh, This chapter specifically breaks down into two parts, focusing on elementals, which are material spirits born from the five elements of creation, the five elemental poles. Not born from the poles, but aligning with those, those five elements. It also includes demons, who are the descendant souls of the imprisoned primordials that have become the Yozis in their imprisonment. And demons are their component souls or the things that those component souls have made to serve them, uh, all trapped in hell. The category of spirits actually also includes ghosts and gods, but ghosts got put into the chapter on the dead. And gods are not appearing in this book. Uh, I know we're getting some gods in Adversaries of the Righteous, uh, which was the character compilation series, uh, the way that this is the monster compilation series. But we don't get like some of the lesser gods that we know exist all out there in, in creation could have fit in this chapter, I felt. So we get the division between elementals and, and demons here. And it does point out specifically that while demons are a thing, devils are just a term, and no one cares if you call them a devil. Chaz, what was an entity that struck, stuck out for you in this section? Among the elementals, there were a handful. Charnavrix, uh, the unyielding, is a lesser wood dragon. This is a, a wood elemental who fell in love with a solar in the first age and then rekindled that relationship with each of their reincarnations and has gone turned to slumbering in sorrow uh, with the usurpation and the failure for that solar to return. And so they are now waiting uh, the return of their solar love uh, in their new incarnation. I like elemental dragons, uh, and this was kind of a weird one, and I, I liked the story uh, and then I, I just I liked having another elemental dragon to look at in the in the stats. So what happens to Charnavrix when he finds out that his beloved is an abyssal? Ooh, it sounds like story that's waiting to happen. Yeah, I appreciate that it can move at five hundred miles per hour. <laughs> yes, dragons they be fast. Yeah, it also says that it had dislikes terrestrial exalted. So fuck you, liminals. <laughs> <laughs> When they say terrestrial exalted here, I think they specifically mean the dragon-blooded. Yeah. Because in in world, the term terrestrial exalted refers to the dragon-blooded. From outside the game, we use terrestrial exalted to refer to exalted at the the dragon-blooded power tier, which includes liminals, some exigents, and maybe some of the other weird apocryphal exalted. In world, it it refers specifically to to the dragon-blooded. It pleases me whenever description and mechanics are married together well. Rimvidas, I felt, met that requirement, who is not an elemental, but is later on in the section. And Rimvidas causes excessive growth in all things. And this was mechanically represented by the fact that Rimvidas can continually add additional time units to extended projects at the cost of a complication to them. 
So he could just keep making things bigger and bigger and slightly more of a problem. And I'm like, this, this, this very much pleased me. The only problem with that is if, unless a character player is playing Grimvadas, then we get the scenario of the storyteller like negotiating with themselves to figure out what the complications are but uh, there's a couple spots in the book where there's like a discourse between monsters you're like okay so the storyteller gets to talk to the storyteller so i think with room Vidas, it is a it's set up to be a demon that you summon because one of the things about demons and elementals is they are not just critters in their own right but each one represents an expansion of the things a sorcerer can can do because many elementals are summonable with the first circle spell summon elemental and the demons are summonable as you go up the circles so i could see a sorcerer summoning rimvidas to do something like this and then the storyteller offering complications as a project spirals out of control i think that's the intent there or we could just ask Monica if that's the intent there, because yeah. I know this is one that was written by Monica. I also am pleased that Rimvadas is specifically listed as pleasant to the eyes and has an appearance of four. And then you look at the art and you're like, okay. <laughs> Rimvadas kind of like, has this look like, uh, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> There's a couple of places in, throughout the book where the art doesn't quite match the description, and, and Rimvadas is one of those. Yeah, Tomesco is another one where it's like, they're creatures of shadow born out of vapor. And then you're like, nope, I can clearly see a bug. <laughs> it's, it's a big bug. <laughs> Anything else strike you with the spirit chapter? The hearth flame? Uh, was a neat one among the elementals, a small ambulatory flame that stokes emotions until hearths literally burst into flames. That seemed like a, a neat fire elemental, something that would definitely be a problem if you ran into it out in creation. So that was one that I liked. The flicker feather uh, was a weird water elemental who's about as smart as a parrot, uh, looks like a cuttlefish and swims through the air. Uh, and likes playing tricks as a mimic. And that would just be, it would be a problem to deal with that creature. I thought Stainwald of the 13 Efficacious Dances, who has a cape that is also a horse, I think, was kind of interesting because like... Wolfric or Wolfrith. Yes. The, the horse cape. It makes a mention that dance suffuses Malpheus and that Stainwald is the pinnacle of dance-based magic. And... The 13 efficacious dances are way too specific for any good reason. Like it gets its own page and one of them allows them to create a seven mile deep, one yard wide hole, (laughs) or they can remove stone at a rate of one cubic yard per hour a power that specifically screws with the dragon blooded and the ability to mess up earth elementals. And it's just like, by the way, the 13th is unknown. Like these are surprisingly specific. And I also like the ones that are and are not listed as eclipsable or not. I also like that Onyx Path's uh, insistence that numbers below 10 are, unless they are a numerical die value or a target number, are spelled out, includes the ordinals because it spells out from first to ninth and then from 10th on, um, it is just listed as a digit. I'm like, get them, editor! There are 
a bunch of these that are eclipse charms. Uh, and so that that is another thing that that's neat about the spirit chapter and some of the others. This really expands the number of options that the eclipse alike cast power offers if you can go and learn these secrets from those who hold them. The final entry in this chapter is one that I wanted to, to talk about a bit as well. Sibri, the Rampant of Serpents, a uh, third circle demon. There's a wall of living, living serpents who teaches that life is pain, pain is change, and change is life. This is the first third circle demon we have ever seen full stats for in Exalted, which is awesome. Third circle demons have always been like plot level powers, and Sibri gets to be plot level power and also have stats that you can fight. So if you want to fight the serpent wall, you can, but she's going to mess you up. Yeah, so um, the thing that I didn't get, though, is like reading through it, there are other creatures that have a, a crap ton of health levels. Like in this case, uh, Sibri has 55 health levels and a soak of 17. Like when you're trying to figure out what makes a creature powerful, what determines that? So the things that really show me that Sibri is powerful are not, not the health levels in soak. Uh, you can have that kind of soak on a, a regular human level character and and as soon as that you like overcome that soak in some way and can get the the big initiative attack off against them that soak doesn't matter anymore and they can just be killed like outright the so the health levels stop that from happening but the things that really make sibri a, a threat and that i can see doing a, a lot of heavy lifting for being able to present some of the other third circle demons is the living landscape merit, mm -hmm. uh, which does a, a number of things for creatures that are also landscapes, which is very relevant for third circle demons uh, because much of Malpheus is made up of the living bodies of, of third circle demons. They can't be grappled. They are immune to harm from non-magical sources even from magical sources, the amount of damage that is that can be done to them is limited. And so that kind of just pushes away the threat of the action economy. Uh, and then there are attacks like Limitless Serpent Assault that lets Sibri attack everybody all at once because she's a wall of snakes and everybody can get bit by a snake. And it, it lets you create a threat that is almost more of an environment than a creature. And so I start with the presentation here, I start to see the shape that some of the other third circle demons could take as well. Uh, certainly, Sibri is more concrete than some of the other ones, like the Ravine of Whispers. I'm still not sure how I would stat the Ravine of Whispers, but we've got this living environment uh, idea coupled with special abilities and charms that are, are affect everyone around it. Yeah, looking at some of the ultra massive creatures, though, like it just uh, Malakari is a mile tall. To give that fewer than thousands of hit points and soak values in the hundreds just is nonsensical to me. Like to me, when you're dealing with creatures like that, how do you destroy them? Plot device, right? It is my first thought. I understand that that's not how Exalted works. It wants you to be able to decapitate a god, but. Without something like an obvious tier system, <laughs> I am not 
I look at Some, it and I'm something like, like scale. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, pardon me. That's that's what I wanted to say. I'm just like, uh, oh, okay. Because listed here, it seems like Sibri could be killed by an army with ballistae, and I don't know if that's a commentary on creation can't raise that or I'm missing something. I think an army with ballistae would have a hard time setting up in a way that Sibri would not roll over them as a pile of snakes. Okay. That, yes, you could fire a handful of ballistae, but if, if you if you play out the rules, ballistae still have to follow the rules for getting initiative and launching attacks and, okay. and like decisive attacks. So they would have to build up to at least eight initiative due to Sibri's hardness of seven. Mm-hmm. And so most mortal joint battle rolls are not going to be that, and that is going to give Sibri a couple of rounds to drop a snake wall on top of them. It is also going to limit the, the damage per ballistae. So yes, you, you could have a giant army of ballistae come and, come and do this, but then Sibri could turn into her person form or spawn off a, a separate snake and, and give it to someone, and then that snake will become a new Sibri. So there's there's ways for Sibri to get out of the attack by an army of it's just one of those things where i'm like running through this thought experiment where it just it feels like a lot of the uh combat mechanics are answering the wrong question um how do you mean in the sense that you're dealing with entities that are so fundamentally massive but at the same Mm, time exalted says but essence and the other thing that gets me about creatures like sibri is uh sibri has a resolve of five that doesn't like to me, a third circle demon should have a resolve of 30. Uh, the idea that like, okay, the, the greatest entities in all of creation would have great difficulty taking this down, but I can argue them into submission with little to no difficulty. That seems incongruent to me. And that happens a few times. And maybe that's the implicit thing that we want to do. Like when you talk about Karagas, Karagas is a resolve of four, but a divining intimacy of none shall not, someone shall not pass, which brings it up to a difficulty, what, a challenge of nine that I need to overcome, which, I mean, isn't too out of sorts, I think, with the right dice pools, right? That is true, but if you try to convince someone to do something that betrays a defining intimacy, they can reject it freely as unacceptable influence. You would have to erode that intimacy before before you could convince them to betray it. To make an exception, maybe, but, but to really betray it becomes unacceptable influence. So there's the unacceptable influence rules. Uh, looking at Sibri's intimacies. Sibri seems like you could convince her to do some things for you. Yeah. I'm not sure you'd love the results. No, no. But that was one of those things where it's like, oh, you've built this combat monster. But in a lot of cases, they have like a resolve of four. (laughs) And you're like, this doesn't seem like too much of a lift, which may be the point. But that is something that I, as someone who is not familiar with running the game, but certainly reading the material, I'm like, what? How does this work? I do think it is it is in part intentional that a lot of the problems in Exalted come from not talking about the problems. Okay. Like going to fisticuffs first instead of trying to resolve things otherwise. Mm. Okay. And that even goes back to the like the inciting incident of the usurpation happened because the scenarios when they all got together and said, Oh boy, the future's doomed if we don't do something. Uh, we could talk to the Solar Exalted and maybe solve this or murder them all and we'll have better certainty. They chose the murder them all option. Like that is, it is definitely baked into the the story of Exalted. I think the other half of it is that the uh, resolve numbers are just miscalibrated. I know I've talked in other places about how 
some of the numbers for like damage and soak the difficulty curve one to five is not an appropriate difficulty curve for exalted but they act like it is in places uh, and essence solves that by saying nope the difficulty curve starts at three like don't don't even bother otherwise solves a lot of that and i think one of the knock-on effects of the math just not quite adding up is that you get lower resolve numbers because it is it is easy even for a starting level uh, dragon blood to hit a five on a an influence roll anything before we move on to the wild i hope we see more third circle demons third circle demons are great but like other sections many third circle demons get like a lot of word count in other books uh, and so i would have liked maybe another half page of Sibri's place in Malpheus and and Sibri's agenda and stuff like that. Sibri's mm-hmm. new and 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 great. So chapter four is entitled Creatures of the Wild, and this is a array of entities that can be kind of anywhere in creation, but in a bunch of cases, it specifically ties them to the border marches and middle marches. Is that a term that we have so far seen otherwise in third edition? Yes, I believe it is mentioned in the core. I know it's also mentioned in Heirs of the Shogunate. In the Tour of Creation, the Border Marchers and Middle Marchers are not discussed, but they are discussed in the Charm section um, of Exalted Three. That was the thing that th- threw me. Yeah, the, the Wild is one of the places that needs some more fleshing out in third edition. Uh, previous editions had the, like the basic Wild rules in the, their, the core, and third edition does not but has a number of rules that refer to the rules that have not been written, that that's definitely a gap. Are there any wild beasts or, or creatures of the wild that, that you particularly liked? Oh, yes. I feel weird because both of them involve tigers. And in the same way you're the bird guy, I don't want to become the felid guy. The epicene, the tiger-headed serpent creatures that have heard countless stories and have spent centuries on the periphery of creation have much wisdom to share and a fondness for the uh, Gatimians and I just kind of like that of just kind of these dandyish tigers going ooh this is new Um, they can pluck a feather from its body and speak its enemy's name and release the feather into the wild and until the episode's next turn, the target becomes overwhelmed with how minuscule they are in comparison to creation and its vast history and I'm like yeah one of the things that Exalted doesn't often discuss that I wish it did more is the philosophical implications of literally anything. Um, so one of the recurring things is like, Barrowhounds can sense the future. We're not going to talk about any ramifications that could have. Moving on, here's how you kill one. And the episode is like, you're minuscule and nothing in in grand terms. And somewhere there's a joke to be made that you're merely a moat in God's eye. And that being a diegetic, that being a, a term in exalted, but we're not quite there yet. And I just like that because they're weird and they're out there and they don't care. And they have different drives and needs than other entities. And as much as exalted talks about keep creation weird, that weirdness is often within a certain kind of defined box of weirdness. Quote Lisa Simpson, how rebellious in a remarkably conformist kind of way. Um, right. the, the, <laughs> sometimes the weirdness of creation strikes me as this. And these are a little bit, these are one step outside of that, that this is a entity noted, an ageless entity motivated by curiosity that wants for neither power nor dominion. And I think that is an interesting creature to introduce. Uh, the other one are the uh, Solere, which are tigers that consume sound. And I like the idea of introducing this into a game that once the creature appears that no one at the table is allowed to talk. 
Um, you have to <laughs> you have to communicate via hand signals or text messages if you wanted to, if you wanted to do it. And as you overcome the wall of silence through resolve action or whatever is listed in there, uh, you get to talk again. And I like that as a creature. It has a remarkably flavorful introduction. Some of these are just dripping with setting and others are dripping with other ideas. It says, uh, silence is a shroud. It is the hush that falls after a snowstorm, the weight of clouds before thunder peals and rain pours. It is a room full of secret everyone knows but dares not speak or the force of words withheld out of anger, cruelty, or fear. It's the pause before the battle breaks out, the stillness of the hunt hunted when the hunter draws near silences comforts compassion when no words can soothe the broken heart in the wild silence is a thief slinking on a on padded feet and i'm like <laughs> yes <laughs> i just thought it was very well done and mechanically it represents this by the tiger being able to steal passwords and pluck rumors out of a community and prevent commands from being issued and so on and i just thought that was beautiful and interesting and it is a creature that does something interesting that makes, even if you are being reduced to combat, more interesting in that it selectively defangs the common get diclave cut thing in half mode that I think uh, things can kind of fall into. How about you? Uh, there were a couple in here that I thought were really cool. The Hallowed Husk is one where the art makes it look gigantic, but it is not necessarily gigantic. It introduces the idea that sometimes the wild makes sunlight fall like rain, and then any animals who drink that pool of sunlight rain are transformed, burning from within and needing to consume light in order to survive the night, because in the darkness they, they bleed away their, their essence and then their health. And the idea of sunlight falling like rain and transforming creatures into these light-feeding monsters fits really well with the, the themes of with monstrous threat in the north of Exalted, uh, and, and I just thought it was a really cool idea. The other one that I thought was neat was the Siren Tower, a gleaming tower of junk that lures in the living because it knows the living has have stuff and it wants more stuff to make itself taller. And its strategy is to, yes, be a living tower, but then lure people in and collapse onto them to try to kill them. And I, I just, I thought that was uh, a very uh, interesting and amusing kind of approach to, to hunting. It kind of reminds me, I would frequently ask people on a scale of one to Nature Valley Granola Bar, how emotionally fragile do you feel right now? And this kind of <laughs> gives me another <laughs> another option to do uh, regarding that. And yeah, it's another creature that has uh, weird wants. I also like the, the hallowed husks because the hallowed husks, because it answers the question of, hey, you're outside of the realm what threats can we introduce when your anima goes bonfire? Because you're not going to run into the Immaculate Order out here, probably. Oh, but there are creatures that eat sunlight. And guess what? <laughs> guess what that counts as, solar. So I, I appreciated that. Yep. The Visage Blight was another one that introduced kind of a, a cool idea where it is a scrap of fake identity that becomes a parasite. And the idea that because of that, uh, among peoples who live at the, the boundary of the wild, there are strict taboos uh, against adopting false identities or even using a name that is not your own because it, it could be taken up by the wild as a, a parasitic face. 
And the mirrorkin did something similar when they said that the mirrorkin are dim-witted. So when you meet someone, it is often common to ask them a rapid-fire sequence of questions that only they would know the answer to. So <laughs> I like the idea of your characters going to some settlement in the wild and they're being expected and someone being like, what's the standard price of apples in Nexus? Um, and like all other, and like be having to rapidly calculate sums to prove that they're not a mirrorkin. I could see you liking that. That, that falls well, well inside the realm of things that you like to do in a role-playing game. Yes. In real time, much to the chagrin of players. One of the ones I was curious about your thought of, what did you think of a Yukino Taco, the Broken God? This is a, a creature who's been through some stuff, was defeated by a Raksha princess who immured him into a cage of gossamer and just wanted to drink his sorrow as the village that worshipped him disintegrated. And now he's mostly mushroom, but also is tired of exalts who are like, I can help you. And then they don't. I thought that was kind of fascinating, but I don't know how that fits into big exalted. And I was curious if you had thoughts on that. This is where I think we run into the conflict of there's a lot of really good small exalted and it and the big exalted doesn't give it the room to breathe because the exalted are so powerful. I think stories around them tend to be big world shattering stories. But a lot of stuff in, because you need that to be able to challenge them and to be able to present threats that are epic in scope, because epic, uh, because Exalted wants to be an epic game. Yukino is an example of, of what I call small Exalted, where there's a lot of like little on the ground, very personal stories that are set up in creation that... I would love to be able to spend more time with. Mm -hmm. And the power curve of Exalted makes it hard to both highlight the power curve of the mechanics of the game and also highlight all the little cool moments in the world that there should be. So there's definitely some tension there in my mind between the big Exalted and small Exalted, if, if that makes sense. Because even starting level characters are so powerful, they're, they're already at the, the level where they can be shaping kingdoms, that it makes it hard to tell a story about just one god lost in the wild. Yeah. And my problem with that is when your Essence 4 character takes this story, it's not quaint, it's obliviousness. It's the equivalent of Jeff Bezos helping a single school. Yeah, sure, but really we should be expecting more out of you. <laughs> yeah, um, and that that's where... Things have, have been introduced over the editions that kind of make playing the Exalted more exciting right out of the gate, but have also pushed up the starting level of the power curve. Things like a supernal ability. In, for Solars in 3rd edition, you can pick one ability and you can get their top tier charms as a starting character in that ability. That's new to third edition, and it it basically says, hey, even starting level characters can go all the way to 11. It makes it hard to have the space for the characters who do start on the, the personal scale. It would be nice if there were something between zero and one, as it were, in Exalted. So, Storyteller Vault! Um. <laughs> A lot of it's really cool. Uh, there's the Raksha who hears your story and then disgorges it as people over a feast that one's fun unicorns are deadly perfectionist murder horses um and who doesn't like that and any others that that you 
particularly like. I like the lava moth who burn away feelings and people who try and visit them to get rid of harmful memories, which is kind of one of the recurring things. The water elemental that is listed earlier, whose name is escaping me, is presented as a similar memory or feeling manipulating power. And I like the idea of having creatures that have charms that are particular that would trigger a quest. And I could certainly see a character trying to visit the lava moths to burn away an intimacy that kept causing limit break. Or something like that. And then you read through the listing and you don't really get a lot of information about it. Uh, one of the problems that happens is there's a thin line between things that are listed as legend says and then there's a mechanic for it. And legend says, and yeah, it's just a legend. So you would need to be willing to take up that mantle to do something out of it. It's, at least the first part is there, even if that second part doesn't land. The final chapter is entitled Animals. And these are, are in theory mundane, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks, animals of creation. Creation includes many animals in our that in our world are extinct, or uh, animals that are exceptional in some way and could not evolve in our world's paradigm, but are just animals in Exalted. It's also worth noting that because these are animals, every one of them is a valid form for a lunar to take. So separating these from the magical creatures is important because lunars cannot become magical creatures and they can become animals. And it was kind of interesting to me, like another part where the exalted system kind of makes me go, eh, is like bats have five health levels and they're just a bat and they have five <laughs> health levels. But one of the ones that I really liked, uh, shout out to whoever did the aurochs. Their stats are accurate. They did historically weigh about 3,000 pounds and were about six feet tall. The one thing that they missed is in our history, they had a soak of five, not of seven. I like that the llamas and camels are listed as having certain things that increase with the essence of their riders, which suggests to me that llamas are geomantic. And I just like the idea they're like, why do camels look stupid, geomancy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... So the important thing to note there is that those are latent abilities. Latent abilities on animals are, are abilities that can only be unlocked with charms that enhance your familiar. So it's not that they naturally do that, but that uh, an exalt who has forged a bond with a creature can bring out that trait within them. The one that struck out to me that I'm like, oh, this is neat, was I liked the uh, Mossman, which was a tiny flying dinosaur, which is different than our current extant tiny flying dinosaurs. More dinosaur-y and less passerine. They are very hard to train, and they're used as a status symbol. And I liked that, the idea that it's like, well, this creature actually isn't that much better necessarily, but it's really hard, and that's how you do dick measuring among the dragon-blooded. It can dive like a mother. Like, you look at all the all the things it has, you're like, oh, it has two attack dice, unless it's charming, in which diving, in which case it gets 35. Um, the other thing that, I, that struck me is uh, occasionally you will have a Disney film, and you will have the good guy against the bad guy, and then the good guy's animal companion against the bad guy's animal companion, and the moss pit felt like it was the creature that you had on your shoulder to fight the creature on the shoulder of the abyssal you were going up against. That it's like, familiar versus familiar, fight! What did you like, Chaz? There were a couple in here that I thought were really cool. The armored kraken is a kraken, so it's a, it's a giant cephalopod. But mechanically, it gets treated like a ship and has special ship abilities. And just I, I think that's a really neat way to represent sea monsters mechanically is that you can kind of fight it as a monster or fight it as a ship. 
Ah, I know that's another one that Monica wrote. The Metagalopin Riding Hawk. It's a riding hawk. Mount Metagalapa is a mountain that floats in the air. What more do you want? I've always liked Mount Metagalapa and the Riding Hawks, even before birds were uh, my brand. And I, I enjoy this this version of the Metagalapa and Riding Hawk. It's yeah. only a two-dot familiar. And Mount Metagalapa and the Riding Hawks, I think that was the last band you saw before COVID hit. Um, yes. So- <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I, I took issue with some of the birds. Because the Strix is like, it carries off a person, but it has a 15-foot wingspan. You would need at least a 25-foot wingspan to carry well, off. Well, look at that art art there. That is not a 15-foot wingspan in that art. Just saying. I just Compared don't. to that person, let's see, that's, maybe, maybe they mean 15 feet per wing. Um, mm, yes. Uh, if you compare that person that's carrying away to its wings, like, I, I could see that. Or it's that a very thing. strangely sized person is also possible. Sure. Um, yeah. A child. Yes. I like the forest rider. They're walking stick bugs that you can ride, which answers that question, but they're also huge, which makes me wonder, are there insects in creation that have lungs or is the East more oxygen risk rich or something else? I also like the fact that it says it can lose a leg to get away from someone. They don't even have to be grappling it. I just like the fact that it's kind of like an F you that it just like shoots a leg and you're like, why the fuck did it shoot a leg at me? And you just leave. <laughs> the uh, Quetzalcoatlus uh, is, or rather the Sky Titan is a Quetzalcoatlus um, at exalted scale. So if you like giant pterodactyls, you've got that here. Um, so we do have some dinosaur likes in here. The Simhata, I, I want to call out the art for the Simhata because it has gotten a lot of attention. It is the best Simhata art over the editions. Simhata are the lion horses of the Exalted, and they've always been depicted in art a little bit goofy. And this Simhata looks fierce, like you would actually want to ride it instead of not want to ride it because it's silly. So the thing that got me about the Simhata art is it said it stalked like a tiger, but based on the rough sizing, that is like being quietly stalked by a dump truck. Um, (laughs) It also said it was skillful at scaling terrain, like a goat. I'm like, you are literally 10 times larger than a goat. So it's just one of those things where I'm like, "Mm, okay, sure. (laughs) I'll let you have this. Oh, the Northern Ursid is a weird one. It's a polar bear, except it also has gills. It's bigger than the polar bear. Oh, it's, it is bigger. Than, it is bigger than a polar bear. That is true. It's a little bit bigger than the polar bear. Polar bears top at about nine feet. These guys go up to about eleven, from okay. what I recall. And I also like the fact that, like, the fact that it has armor suggests that, like, they're born with it. Um, <laughs> it does like, explain. It does explain that they oh, get yeah, trained. <laughs> so someone else is strapping armor to it, but I think someone just wanted to do art of an armored polar bear, and so that's what we got. Entirely reasonable. In the same way that the Siaka answers the question of, what if sharks had more eyes and teeth? (laughs) (laughs) They don't have more eyes. They have a regular number of eyes. Oh, no, they do have more eyes. Look at that. Yes. (laughs) I hadn't noticed that before. And it's funny because they're predators, but the eyes are still like clearly on the side. So I'm like, what eats them? I I do also appreciate that they look more like a bull shark than a great white shark, Mm -hmm. uh, because great white sharks get a lot of crap for being uh, aggressive killers, and it's the bull sharks you have to worry about Mm -hmm. um, who are actually aggressive killers, or tiger sharks who are just really curious and will bite you because they don't know what you are rather than because they're being aggressive about it. Yeah, I like the Tongamo monkeys who have the ability to mirror a human laugh and nonverbal noises. And I'm like, that is vastly more menacing than I anticipated it being. So I was glad that that was there. I think they're Tarsiers based on the art. 
that's that's what they kind of looked like somewhere between a tosier and a lemur to my mind yeah it, the closest i think is a probably a galago also known as the lesser bush baby but just saying bush baby always feels weird so <laughs> that does sound weird yeah uh, I know people have called them a fast loris, um, <laughs> as opposed to the slow loris. Are they poisonous? Uh, they are not, which is okay. which is what made me say definitely not a loris. Okay, understood. The, the urchin is the last entry in the book. It's a hedgehog. Yeah. Um, the art makes it look like a giant hedgehog, but it is not supposed to be giant, I think. At least it's not described that way. I mean, it's, um, it's got seven hit points, so it's probably about the size of a duck based on how this book scales things, so... Uh, I, I was imagining them kind of dog-sized at, at most. The North gets a lot of coverage in this book, I feel. Uh, in the North is full of weird critters. Yes. Would you like to talk about your, th- your thoughts on the book overall? I thought it was really solid. It, it doesn't have a lot of word count for setting, um, but what it does have like really fleshes out creation in, in interesting ways in little bits and pieces here and there, which is something that I always like in a book. The It gives a lot of options. I thought the demons presented were fantastic. I loved getting some of the top tier threats like Ujumgan and uh, Sibri, where, yeah, I could see how that would play out against a high essence circle of exalts and, and be a fight that would not be one-sided in favor of the exalts. There's clearly been a lot of design thinking into, into saying, how do we take third edition and make antagonists that are going to stand up against the exalted? Uh, which I, I know I've had some challenges doing myself um, at, at my home table. I think it's a really solid entry. I mentioned that I would have liked a little bit more word count spent on placing each of the things in their, their proper place. The art is a little hit or miss to me. Some of it's really cool. Some of it is just a little bit off. And I'll, I'll go to the Sky Titan, for example, who is very clearly off balance on top of that ziggurat pyramid. And like that would have been a really easy one to solve by having it standing on its wing hands like a Quetzalcoatlus actually stood. And then it would have looked menacing on, screaming on top of that pyramid. But as it is, it just looks like it's going to fall right over. A couple of them, like the urchin or the, the haloed husk, look gigantic when that is not the case. But then some of them, like the Simhata, are the best version ever of a Simhata. Mm-hmm. The Armored Kraken, it's a very solid piece uh, attacking a ship. The Silence Panther is in that kind of impressionist watercolor style that that I think is iconic of 3rd edition, like all of the chapter opening art, and, and is is uh, spot on. So there's there's some good art, and, and there's some that, that don't quite hit for me. Overall, like, Exalted has a higher bar to clear to me, because unless you are an OSR game or a and d like game, you don't get to produce a monster manual. Your monster manual needs to also be a setting book. You don't get to just produce monsters. That That is Terry's extended theory of RPGs. We can go into that at a later point. But this creates a wildly dangerous creation that brings up the question for me again of how do the peasants protect themselves? A lot of these creatures are highly infectious or able to kill entire villages. Cockatrice, the parasitic shadow, the acid vomiter, the heart flame are all things that without something with essence in the area to stop it could decimate a nation. And I think it really failed to address that problem. I am much less concerned about third circle demons than I am some of those parasitic creatures that are relatively difficult to to stop. That is a, a narrative concern I have. We never get like a food chain. Like we never <laughs> get this creature is preyed on by this creature. 
which I would want to see, or this is the useful thing it rolls. Outside of the Gem Seeker and a few, and, and very few other things, I would want more utility creatures where something answers a question of how something happens in the world. Like we got a bunch of creatures that deliver messages very quickly and either like doing that or there's a specific thing they want for it. And you're like, oh, okay, I could see the guild taking advantage of that or something. Everything else, I would have liked more narrative creatures that explain something with how the world works. So my feeling on the narrative creatures is that you don't need a full entry for them because the gem seeker could be two paragraphs mm -hmm. and then dispense with a stat block because it's a small lizard. Mm -hmm. It's, it is not a threat to you unless you've been shrunk somehow, which isn't really a thing that happens in Exalted, or you make it Titanic the, the way that, that Lunar Exalted can with their spirit forms, mm -hmm. but they can't turn into it anyway. So I, I could see having an entry of like, here's two pages of two paragraphs each of utility creatures, rather than a, a full entry the way that, that they're presented here. Which the book addresses in a couple of places by, for instance, the two entries that we have for different types of spiders, one the regular spider and the other being the demon spider, where it says, here's a basic template, here are variants, and this is where they come up. Um, yeah. So so that could have been handled that way. My favorite of those variant creatures are the demon spiders that yell at you if you don't dance enough. Um <laughs> <laughs> I thought that the was... Demon City is infused with dance. It is apparently infused with dance. The other thing that I want is I want a transcript of a high essence exalt fight. What does that fight against Sibri or Ugin like look like? I don't I don't even know. Other game systems written by similar authors, he says, pointing at StoryPath, is like, here's how to scale the threat with the characters. I have no concept of even how to approach that in Exalted. And that may be commentary on me. It was hard to find things. A little bit of a reminder of like what some mechanics were like, because in some places it would just be number slash number. And I'm like, wait, what's the second one? I'm like, Chaz, is that threshold? The other thing that struck me as when we, you and I talked about Exalted initially, like the combat works really well for the delicate duels between masters done with a killing blow. But for once, this is a book where it's a rock creature that throws rocks at you. And maybe, and maybe withering and decisive doesn't make sense anymore. I don't know how you would handle that, but to me, it kind of strains the intent of that system. I wonder if there's a version that would be simpler when it is the rock creature that throws rocks at you. I've been thinking about that because I, I really like the choices that you have to make in third edition combat. Essence combat is mechanically better, but doesn't have the granularity that I, I would say a full exalted would because it is supposed to be exalted simplified. And then kind of looking looking uh, at the back of the nap gang at story path, the way that story path uses successes and stunts in combat to do things. Like I think there's some combination of the build power model of essence plus the use your successes for doing stuff stunts of story path that would deliver on the right combination of things to have enough granularity for deep charm trees that exalted needs but also leaving room to have environmental threats that you can actually interact with meaningfully mm -hmm. versus needing to force everything into the withering decisive mix they kind of do it with battle groups where battle groups just make attacks. They attack your initiative if you have initiative or your health levels if you're in an initiative break. It may be a case where shifting more antagonists to that model 
would make sense because you want to have more granularity for player characters than for storyteller characters because mm -hmm. storytellers have to manage a bunch of characters mm -hmm. and so flat numbers are a lot easier to deal with than a series of dice tricks and exalted doesn't quite get there in third edition the way that story path does I have two sections that I have added to my review. One is creatures that I want to see in creation. The other is the list of words I learned from this book. Ooh. Do you have anything else that you would like to add or should I just launch into theirs? Let's do it. Uh, the first is Sir Bobblecock, the sentient and punctilious worm. Each segment has its own top hat. Worms in this book always were trying to kill you and were always going for your eye. Every artistic depiction of this book of an annelid-style creature, it has an intimacy of crawling into people's skulls. So that was kind of a recurring theme, so I think Sir Bobblecock would be a nice counteract to that. The other one is Jim, the unremarkable hand, who is an ambulatory hand that was enslaved during the First Age, was released during the Contagion, is thrilled that the Shogunate has fallen, and now Cruz's creation looking for diamonds to add to its exceptional glove collection. This is a commentary on the fact that everything here that is tied to the first age is like, I'm still doing the thing. And it just kind of has this constant notion of like, you know, time has moved on. You can do something else. And there's nothing in it that's like, the, the, the solars are gone. Whee! Everything is just waiting to be re-enslaved by solars. So um, the unremarkable hand is my, my counter to that. Um, I also want a creature that as it eats, it shrinks. Everything in here consumes something and just gets bigger and explodes at some point. So that's, I would like to see a creature go the other way. Like my idea for tiny diclaves the size of uh, cocktail swords. So, uh... <laughs> Listeners, you can't see this, but Chaz has a slight humored and slight annoyed look on, on his face. I, I know you have repeated to me a number of times that you, you we spent a year going through Exalted and you're still like, I don't get Exalted. Um, and, and this very much seems to be in that vein. Um. <laughs> well, when I do my write-up for Sir Bobblecock, I'm going to give you a special thanks. The ambulatory mini-top-headed worm. The words I learned. Uh, Exalted is regularly one of the only RPGs where I learn new words. And in this case, it was sedent, meaning of the style of creeping or crawling vines. I did not know necropolis was an acceptable plural of necropolis. I had always just used necropoli. The secondary definition of limb, uh, L-I-M-N, to be lined or edged with. Omphalos, meaning hub. Abysade, meaning ambush. And porphyrial, which I think is a word they invented, and I think it just means to look purple. And the other one is eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, a sudden change in body mass often occurring before a creature divides. The one that I looked up while reading this was Ichneumian, for the Ichneumian hunters being a giant parasite Yep. Yes, ichneumonic wasps are the parasite wasps that lay their young as parasites. The word itself is pretty fascinating because it has a, a weird combination of ground and hunter to it. If you follow the roots back, I remember running into that in Magic the Gathering where Ichneumon Druid was, was a creature. Anything else before I ask what we're reading next? No, I, I think we're good. So Chaz, what are we reading next? I think we're reading another chapter of Mage. I'm not sure when we're going to air that, though. Yeah, and those are going to go up. And sometime after that, we're probably going to read Mummy. Is that on the maybe list? It is. It is. I'm definitely interested in reading Mummy the Curse, second edition. Mummy the Curse, first edition, kind of got me back into following Onyx Path White Wolf games um, after a period away. I, I have heard a lot and like looked at a bunch of stuff related to second edition, but I'm excited to like sit down and actually give it a read. Nice. 
that's what it was. Ichneamon was another term for the Egyptian mongoose um, <laughs> that I couldn't remember. And if we're interested in following what you're up to, where can we do that? You can find me on Twitter as at StoryToldChaz. And you can find me on Twitter at Terry Robinson. And until you hear from us next, game strong. Remember on Systematic Understanding of Everything, whenever I said sidereal, that air horn would go off? Yeah. I kind of need a similar one for Chaz's fun police. Um, <laughs> but I like fun. <laughs> you, do. <laughs> you do like fun, Chaz. And it was made to bang a decadent god. I may cut that part. You're probably a good idea to cut that part. <laughs>